couple things, just a preview of, of coming attractions. We finished First John this morning, next week. Lord willing, as Mike said, we do an outside service and uh, we'll do Second John next week. If you've looked ahead, you know Second and Third John are both short letters, so they'll, uh, the next two weeks will be Second John and Third John. And then also wanted to mention that coming in September, uh, we'll be offering on Monday nights a course, Discipleship Fundamentals. Those of you, um, some of you remember the, we called it Biblical Counseling Training. And I'm always afraid sometimes that people hear Biblical Counseling Training and think, I don't want to be a counselor. I don't see myself as a counselor, so that doesn't suit me. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, you, you have a role in being alongside other believers, whether you be a parent or a friend or a colleague or whatever it might be. Um, you are in opportunities in which to encourage and exhort and disciple and counsel. And that's really the heart of what this class is about, is just helping us grow as believers in that ability to, to come alongside and encourage. So uh, that's on the gbclorton.com uh, website at under events. If you go to the events tab, you'll see more information about the discipleship fundamentals class. Uh, there is some reading. So if you're interested in it, it might be something you want to get a look at here soon uh, and register for that as well. Uh, for now, turn to 1 John chapter 5. We are finishing our study of 1 John this morning. 11 weeks ago, we began by delving into a book that started with John saying, that which was from the beginning, that which we have seen and heard and touched, that which has come and is life, that which brings life, that which has come from God the Father. He's clearly turning the focus right from the very beginning on the person of Jesus Christ, and that will be the focal point throughout, and we have seen that Jesus Christ is the one who is that messenger of eternal life, that one who brings eternal life by virtue of dying on the cross. It is a remarkable thing that John continues to be just caught up in the love of God because it just stuns him that sinful creatures who have turned their back on the Creator, who have been in rebellion against their Maker, are being invited into communion with Him. They are being called to have fellowship with God. And as we've seen over and over again, John presumes that his audience is believers, are those who are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. They have turned from their rebellion and by faith they are believing in Jesus Christ, but John writes to them out of a particular concern, and, and that is that they are being besieged with false teaching, that there are those who are coming to them and saying things that are not consistent with what they have heard, and they are being shaken uh, about their beliefs, about their faith in Christ. And in many cases, as we've seen in 1 John, these are men who once claimed to be fellow believers, who, who claimed to be friends of these people, who went out demonstrating their uh, no longer having allegiance to Jesus Christ or the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they have now come back with this message of a different Jesus, a different kind of salvation. And so the, the message of humble repentance, of turning from sin and, and needing rescue from God's judgment for sins has been replaced uh, they are now proclaiming this Jesus who is really just an ordinary man. He's a model of kindness and goodness and love, but he's just a guy, just a teacher, definitely not God in flesh, not perfect, anointed Savior sent from God. And the false teachers did away with talk of sin and redemption. Uh, it, really, it is a uh, nothing, nothing new under the sun. It, it, in, in modern vernacular, we would say they kind of deconstructed uh, their belief system and came back with a different kind of Jesus. And, and so the attitude now is, listen, 
sometimes we do bad things, but overall, we're good people. The, the, the message of the first century, no different than it is today, that in spirit, when you get down to the core of the person, you're actually really good. You're not a sinner who breaks the law of a holy God. God is not a God of judgment or wrath. He does not punish you. He does not hold you guilty. You're just a typical person who means well and who messes up from time to time, but that's not really who you are. You don't need salvation from your sin, and, and Jesus is just... Um, just a good guy who you ought to follow and you ought to follow his example and, and, and search for your, your good inner spirit. And so John's audience is confused. They have been brought up in the truth. They have believed what they were taught that Jesus Christ himself proclaimed that the apostles have passed down. They knew that Jesus had preached about light and darkness, about good and evil, that Jesus had warned of, of God's holy judgment for sinners, they knew that Jesus said he came to bring life and forgiveness. Uh, they, they knew that what had been passed down to them was that Jesus had said that whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So they, they know of this Jesus who has been very clear in the contrast between good and evil. This Jesus who actually looked at the religious leaders of the day, the, the Pharisees, and said to them, you don't know me. It's an astonishing statement. For Jesus to, to, to say, not only do you not know me, but because you do not know me, you do not know the Father. And it is a profoundly convicting statement to say to the religious leaders who are supposedly proclaiming truths about God that you don't actually even know God. And he says to them that one day I will go away and you will seek me, but you will die in your sin and where I am going, you cannot come. This is the Jesus that had been proclaimed to these people in the churches that John is writing to. Jesus who went on to tell the Pharisees in John 8, you are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus was unmistakably clear that you must put your trust in me or you will spend eternity separated from God. You will spend eternity in hell. They also knew that Jesus had taught that those who put their trust in him then follow him. They, they obey him. They seek to be his disciples. But this new teaching, this sort of Jesus 2.0, was not about Jesus as Lord and Master. Everything was sort of optional and non-required, and love of neighbor was something you did as you felt was okay. But Jesus, those things aren't required in terms of obedience because, after all, he's just a man. He's not like he's God. First John is written to believers in Jesus Christ, to say, if you have trusted the truth about who Jesus is, who he claimed to be, the I am, before Abraham was I am, the, the, the one who has come as God in flesh, who gave his life on the cross in sacrifice for sinners, and who then rose from the grave. If you have believed in that Jesus, the one who is the Christ, who is the Son of God, who died for your sins and rose again, then your trust in him should not be shaken. That is who Jesus is. That is what the gospel is, and you should rest in that. If you look at 1 John 5, 13, we're going to pick up there in verse 13, go down through the end of the chapter. I just want to read verse 13 because this is kind of John's summary, and he does this in the gospel where it's really not till you get to almost the end of the book where you get a summary statement that sort of ties it all together. And here it is in 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. 
That statement, if you're familiar with John's writing, especially in his gospel, should have some echoes to it that should sound similar to his summary at the end of the gospel of John. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he wrote, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Very similar, but the Gospel of John is written to unbelievers, to skeptics. It is to say, here is the life of Jesus Christ. Here is who he is, who he claimed to be, and what he did. If you will know this, and more importantly, if you will believe this, you will have eternal life. You will be saved. That's the goal of the Gospel of John, to lead people to faith in Jesus Christ. First John, as he says there, I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So 1 John is now written to those who are already professing faith to give them assurance that your hope is grounded in truth, that, 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 that you have placed your hope where it should be and it should not be swayed. And so here in the last section of 1 John, a word that we've seen already several times in 1 John uh, sort of rises to the surface and it's the word know, K-N-O-W, know, that you may know, and he says it there in verse 13, that you may know that you have eternal life. John keeps returning to this point of knowledge. As believers, you should know these things. And if you know these things, then they should, they should produce something in you. These things should be planted in you and, and something that you believe deeply and know and in light of these truths that should shape your life and your worship. So in these closing verses of 1 John, we're going to see four truths that believers should know and then a charge that John gives to end the book for believers. Since you know these things, this is what you ought to do. So verses 14 and 15 are the first of these things that we should know. It says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Four things a believer in Jesus Christ should know. Number one, know that you should pray boldly. Verse 14 begins with and, so it connects back. It connects back to what he just wrote, that you, knowing you have eternal life, and, and then he goes on to say, you should be praying boldly. The, the, the point is knowing that you have communion with God, that you have a relationship with God, that you have been brought in Christ, and so you are joined to him, that now places you in a relationship where you can speak freely to him. That word confidence in verse 14, confidence is a fine translation, but it's in the Greek, it's a, a simple compound word, that, two words, all and speak. Be able to say everything that you want to say. Be able to speak freely. Uh, some of you may have worked in an environment where you have a boss who, when the boss calls you in, you understand that the boss is going to speak and you are going to listen and you may get a very short amount of time in which to say what you might need to say or questions you might need to ask and, 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 and try to interject. And so you kind of go in sort of half prepared because you know that it's going to be a real short time before the boss says, that's all dismissed and you're, you're gone. And, and so you're trying to think of what, what can I say before I get interrupted and trying to rush your words. Not so with the maker of the universe. If you belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, he's saying, I invite you in and I want you to speak freely. I want you to speak to me with boldness and confidence. The, the tragedy, of course, is that, that we're the ones 
who approach prayer sort of looking at our watches and saying, sorry, God, but I've only got a limited time here. I got a lot to do. And so I'm going to make this brief. This is all I can do. And I really don't have much time for this. That's, that's on us. But the reality is that he is saying, come with confidence. Say all that you want to say. Speak to me. And the only caveat he puts on it are those four words, according to his will. Boldly approach the Lord and ask anything subject to his will. That, that, that's a key to prayer. And this is obviously not new. It's what Jesus taught. When, when, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Right. That it, it, it's your will, Lord, that we want done. Jesus practiced that in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done, as he's speaking to the Father on the eve of his crucifixion. One commentator writes this, prayer, rightly considered, is not a device for employing the resources of omnipotence to fulfill our own desires, but a means by which our desires may be redirected according to the mind of God and made into channels for the forces of his will. Unlike the prosperity preachers who proclaim a God who is sort of a cosmic ATM machine expected to supply everything that I desire, the purpose of prayer is to align my desires and sometimes even redirect and change my desires so that my desires would now line up with the will of God, so that I would now be an instrument of his work. We are praying that our desires become means by which God fulfills his purposes. And that really means trying to know God better, searching scripture so that we would understand who God is, so that we know this one that we are praying to and what his will, as best we can understand it in our finite minds, that we might understand it. And so as we, as we learn the mind of God, the exhortation here is to pray confidently, Lord, use me, work through me, for whatever is necessary, supply to, to do your will. And, and so ultimately then, what that means is, Lord, take this sickness, Lord, use this weakness, this job loss, this relational pain. Lord, shape my life by your will so that even as I walk through this, you can be at work in my heart and, and, and changing my desires and changing my response and, and changing the way that people might see that your glory is shining through me. Uh, verse 15, when it starts by saying, and if we know that he hears us, that the if there suggests conditional. And, and what, he, what John's implying here is that not all believe this, that, that, that some are praying and they're not really believing that God hears and answers. They're wondering, is God really listening. And, and, and so what John essentially says here is similar to what James wrote in James chapter one, when he speaks of the, the one who is in trial and who is crying out for wisdom. And in James one, he says, let him ask, go, go to God and ask for wisdom. And then he says, let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. James is warning and saying, if you're if you're asking God while you're doubting that God is hearing and listening, that is wrong. Go because if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, he is a loving God who is who's saying, I want to hear, I, I want to hear your lament. I want to hear your joy. I want to hear your intercession. I am calling you to come freely into my presence and to cry out to me. And if you are seeking to ask according to God's will, then do so with confidence, knowing that he hears and answers. Uh, 
That last part of verse 15, though, is not the, 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 the promise to receive exactly what we expect when it says we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him because it's all governed by according to his will. And so what the assurance is, is he hears and he answers, but we also know that that answer will be according to his will. And so the answer may still be no or not yet, but I am coming confidently knowing that the God of the universe who is sustaining it all hears me and desires that I speak to him and, and, and is not watching on the clock to say, okay, your time is up, we need to move on. He wants to hear from me. From out of this first point, to pray boldly would come then, especially for John's audience, the question of what about praying for these individuals who are really tormenting us? What about praying for people who are actively sinning? Um, there's these individuals who used to be friends, they used to attend worship with us, and now they're teaching things contrary. How do we pray for them? Better yet, more broadly, how, how do we pray for people who are sinning? And he deals with it in verses 16 and 17, and these are verses where he's got a main point that often gets blurred by the question these verses raise, but let's read them. 1 John 5, 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So John answers the question, how do I pray for people who are sinning with this second truth is know that you should pray for your brethren. That's his emphasis here, is that we be praying for our brothers and sisters. And he talks about two kinds of people here. And it's the second group that sort of sidetracks us when he talks about these who are committing sin to death. And so right away we want to know what is sin that leads to death, and we'll come back to that. The main point is he's speaking about those that sin does not lead to death. He's talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ who who are committing sin, but they are trusting in Jesus Christ. And so there is no threat of, of eternal death, of separation from God. They are, they are simply, and I, I don't mean that to minimize it, but they're simply sinning. And so how do you deal with that? How do, you, how do you respond to that if they are struggling in sin? If you remember, verse 16 started with, if anyone sees his brother committing sin. And, and so it's this it's a really revolutionary idea for those who are first century believers who believe strongly in sort of the, the priesthood of the priests that are, are learning the, what it is to be the priesthood of believers. In other words, especially Jewish Christians would have expected if the priest sees someone sinning, he should pray for that person. He should intercede. But what scripture says here in verse 16 is if anyone sees his brother committing sin. So the, the, the call here is to believers to take, a responsibility in the lives of our brothers and sisters. So you remember how God urges us to freely speak to him, freely come to him in prayer, constrained only by the desire for his will. Well, God's will is that you and I be concerned for our brothers and sisters and that we be praying for them, especially when it's clear that they need prayer because they are being caught in some sin, they are being caught in some kind of struggle. And so instead of just talking about them instead of gossiping, instead of shaking our heads in disdain, instead of saying, I, I knew they would end up doing this. I just saw it coming from a mile away. The call here is pray 
for that person, love that person enough to plead for God's spirit to convict that person of their sin and draw them to repentance and give them strength to turn from whatever that sin is. And also to pray, Galatians 6 would remind us that we are also trying to guard our own hearts. And so we're praying that we not get caught in that sin as well, that, that we watch our own hearts as we, we're praying for them. But, but really the point is your first line of concern when it comes to interceding should be the family of God. I, I, I think scripture often helps us think sort of in concentric circles, if you will, in terms of giving, praying, that, that there is a wider world that we are giving and, and we are caring about and we are serving and we are praying for, but not to the exception, not to the exclusion of those who are right around us, who are our intimate brothers and sisters who we should be deeply involved in praying for and close to in their lives so that we can see when they are struggling so that we are near them and praying for them. And so before you worry about those outside the family, are you praying for those within the family of God? As for those others, those whose sin does lead to death. First thing is John does not forbid praying for them. He simply does not counsel or urge prayer for them. But the question then becomes, what is this sin that is leading to death? Those of you who may have spent time grown up in the, the Roman Catholic Church know that the distinction is made between mortal and venial sins, and this is really where that comes from, is here in 1 John. It's the notion that there are two sort of categories of sin, mortal sins that are deadly, and then there are venial sins that have less consequence. Uh, Catholic teaching would say some sins, murder, adultery, are, are so heinous that, that they, they, have the, they, they threaten fellowship with God. They break communion with God. And so to die in the state of committing a mortal sin or to die in a condition of being unrepentant, having committed mortal sin, could lead one to eternal damnation. The problem with that is that all sin that is not addressed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, all sin that is not addressed by turning to Jesus Christ and trusting in him, is mortal in that sense. It, it, it is all, the consequence of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And that's why we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. All sin has the capacity to separate people from God. Even as believers, sin has the capacity to interfere with our fellowship with God and our communion with God. Now, obviously there are sins that have more grave consequences. If I say I hate you and I kill you, that has far more serious implications than if I just say, I hate you. There's differences in consequences. But we know what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Both break God's law. Whether it's the angry person cursing at the one or the person who kills the other, both are sin, and in terms of spiritual condition, both consider, count me as an enemy of God, that which I am by nature as a sinner. Both keep me opposed to God and in need of salvation and being made alive in Christ. So I really don't think we need to dig too deeply to understand what John means here because we've already gotten some indications from 1 John, but he's really elaborating on the teaching of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus performs a miracle of healing a man who is deaf and mute. And, and in it, there is this casting out of demons. And so the crowd who sees the healing marvels at what Jesus did and wonders if he is the Messiah. And Matthew 12, 24 says, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. The Pharisees are being shown the work of God. God is in their midst 
miraculously performing a sign that only God can do in the casting out of of, of a demon and the, the providing of sight and hearing and speech now for this man. And the Pharisees are seeing this wonderful work of God and attributing it to the devil. And so Jesus says, so in, in, in his response to them, essentially says, so you're saying that Satan is allied against Satan, that Satan is casting out Satan. That's, that's the foolishness of what you're saying. But it's not just foolish, it's actually mocking the kingdom of God. Jesus says, Matthew 12, 31, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Same story is told in Mark chapter 3. Mark elaborates just a little bit on what Jesus said, Mark 3.29. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. The deadly sin of the Pharisees, this sin unto death, is the stubborn rejection of God's truth about Jesus Christ. It is God showing you what is true about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and it is the stubborn rejection of that. If you remember what our brother Vashon preached last week back in verses 9 and 10, and it talks about the fact that there is testimony about who Jesus is, but the testimony that is supreme is the testimony of God. God says, this is who I have sent to you. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And and, and, and what it said back in verses 9 and 10 is if you reject that, you are calling God a liar. You, you, you are actually saying God lies. And, and it, it, that ultimately is what he's talking about here. When you are confronted by the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you reject those, you plant yourself firmly in a place of eternal condemnation. Now, here's the, the thing for us is we are not given a a gift of discernment with which to say, well, this person has carried out that act, that they have reached that point of reprobation that that they are done for at this point. We don't know that. God in his mind speaks of that, that there is a sin that leads to death. There is a stubborn, persistent rejection of his truth that ultimately leads to eternal death. And if you think about this in the context of, of 1 John, over and over again, John has emphasized to us right thinking about Jesus, believing that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the one sent by the Father who came into the world to be the sacrifice who satisfies God's sin. And ultimately, unless you believe the truth about Jesus, you cannot have eternal life. You will die and you will be separated from God if you do not believe that truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. And so rejecting God's testimony about his son and the salvation Jesus brings, brings about eternal condemnation and leads to death. So in terms of applying this, praying for unbelievers who reject God's truth, John does not forbid it, does not say that we should not. He simply counsels that we should be praying for the brethren as priority. There's nothing here said against praying for God to open the eyes of those who are unbelievers, for God to do what only he can do, and that is to change their hearts and to give them life. But the greater point here is to be interceding, praying for those, especially those who are struggling in sin, praying for God to be at work in them. All right, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, 
But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So number one, know that you should pray boldly. Number two, know that you should pray for your brethren. And number three, know that you belong to God. Know that through faith in Jesus Christ, you are held and kept. In, in verse 16, he had said, if anyone sees his brother, and so he broadens this out, not just priests, if anyone, not just elders, if anyone sees his brother. Now here in verse 18, he says, we know that everyone who has been born of God. And, and so his, his using all here, that all who have been born again, all who belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, have this assurance, and John then describes believers in this language of being born again, of being given new life, the, the language of John chapter 3, the, the begotten language. And, and it, what's really interesting about verse 18 is, is you have born of God twice here. Same word, just different verb tenses and, and, and sort of different implications. Everyone who has been born of God, is it, it's a passive verb, and so it's speaking about Believers in Jesus Christ. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, it's saying that God gave you life. God gave you new life. He gave you the new birth. He, he regenerated you, right? The, the other reference here is to the one when it says in verse 18, but he who was born of God protects him. It appears to be a reference to Jesus. And it's in an aorist tense, which means a point in time. What he's talking about is the incarnation of Jesus. It's not saying that Jesus was a created being, that this is how somehow Jesus came to be and is newly created because we've got the rest of 1 John telling us that he is clearly the, the eternal son of God who came to earth and became flesh. But he's pointing to that point in time when Jesus did indeed take on flesh. And he's identifying Jesus as born of God in that sense. The, the point though is twofold. One, by, by using that for us and for Jesus, that's a tremendous statement of assurance to us that we partake of the nature of Jesus. We are not Jesus, we don't become gods, but we now draw life from Jesus. We are now in Christ. And, and so his, his death on the cross now becomes what saves us. His resurrection now becomes our hope for life. He's, as, as Paul would use the language, he is the first fruits of the resurrection because he did, we get to follow after that. And so it's a wonderful statement that he speaks of born of God, speaking both of the believer and of Jesus of saying, you are becoming like Jesus. You are, you are drawing of his nature. But more than that, what John wants us to see here is ultimately an extension of what Jesus himself promised. In, in John chapter 17, eve of his crucifixion, as he's praying for the disciples, John 17, Jesus says to his father, when I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, being Judas who betrays Jesus. And then he goes on and he prays and he intercedes for all of his followers. I, I prayed for them and, and I'm praying now for all who follow after me. So this is us too, John 17, 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. What 1 John 5 is assuring us is that what Jesus prayed back on the night before his crucifixion still stands. That we are still assured of 
his keeping and guarding of his sheep because Jesus is still interceding for his people. He is still interceding for you as a child of God. He is still He's still coming in in front of you and protecting you and you still belong to him and you are not of this world. And so because of that, you belong to God. Verse 19 says, the whole world lies in the power of Satan. The whole world is enslaved under the control of, of the one that Jesus called the ruler of this world. Satan is not sovereign, but he is powerful. We who are trusting in Jesus Christ are not under his control. And, and, and that's what he's wanting to assure us of, that you have been set free. Your protection comes from Jesus because the spirit is now in you and greater is the spirit who is in you than he that is in the world because that is the very presence of Jesus Christ. And we must know that because Satan and the world do not at the moment of your profession of faith say, okay, we've lost that one. We'll leave that one alone. Satan and the world continue to tempt, to discourage, to, to accuse Uh, to to try to do anything possible to cause you to think and act like anything like opposite of what you are, that you're a believer in Jesus Christ and get you to act like the world. And and, and so we are of, John is reminding us here, a new nature that draws from the life of our Savior and we are protected by him. We have the capacity now to obey and to respond to, to suffering, to discouragement to temptation, still grieving, still dealing as as human beings, but also knowing that that we have a gracious Savior of whose nature we partake and we are in him and we are kept by him. And because Jesus keeps us, we are able to keep God's commands. The, The other point there in verse 18, it says, everyone born of God does not keep on sinning. The ESV uses keep on there to try to capture the present tense nature of that. It's not saying never sins. What it's saying is because we've been born again, we're not comfortable there. We don't dwell there in sin. That, it, that, that when we sin, there is a sense of this is wrong. There is a sense of conviction. There is a sense of, of wanting to change. I'm not comfortable as I am when I'm on my couch at home. I, I can dwell right there. And what he's saying is you don't keep on sinning because that's not where, it's not where you live anymore. Instead, you are urged toward repentance and the Holy Spirit is at work in you, convicting you in that way. All right, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Fourth thing we know. Know, you should know, that you know the truth about God. I know that sounds circular, but remember again what John's audience is facing. This, this new ideas about Jesus and, and, and salvation. It, it, they are facing essentially the first century version of what we would describe as deconstructed today, which is, um, I used to believe that stuff that you believe, but now I've changed. And now I see Jesus as this. Here's, here's how I define Jesus. I've deconstructed and I've come up with a new idea of who Jesus is. And that's why John closes out this message of 1 John to say, you need to know that you already know the truth. If you have put your trust in Jesus as he has revealed himself, the son of God who who has come, then then rest in that. The, the, The language, in fact, that he uses in verse 20, and we know that the son of God has come, 
Let me pause there because Vashon did such a wonderful job of mentioning this last week and pointing this out. That, that when John speaks in terms of Jesus has come, he's not just talking about the historical fact of Jesus coming, but he, he, he means everything by that. The fact that Jesus came, the Son of God, lived a sinful life and gave himself on the cross and died for our sins and rose again victorious. So when he says the Son of God has come, he's talking about the whole gospel. The Son of God has come to do the Father's will and to save sinners. And so if we, when we know that, we know the truth. We, we know who him, is, him who is true. And because Jesus has come, and because he has died and rose again, then now we have the presence of his spirit. Again, on the night before his crucifixion, John is echoing back to Jesus praying for his disciples that it's actually good for you that I go away because when I do, the helper will come. And the helper will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. But John 16, 13, Jesus said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So when verse 20 says, we know that the son of God has come, we know the truth of the gospel and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. He's now saying that because Jesus has come, now his spirit has come who gives us understanding of his truth so that when we, we hear the gospel, when we read these truths, they now resonate with our very soul that we are hearing from the true and eternal God. It is God who is speaking his truth and we get that assurance. Now, before we leave verse 20, I, I, there's, I, I think just sort of a monumental little tack on here that John does at the end. And, and it says, we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. He's talking about Jesus there on that last, he is the true God and eternal life. And we know that because this is the bookend to the, the, the first chapter. He started in chapter one saying the one from the beginning, you know, the one we saw and heard and touched who came to bring what? Life. Uh, proclaim eternal life. And he's, he's bringing it all together here. But in the simplest and clearest of ways, he says his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Because we are in Christ, we have union with God because Jesus himself is God in flesh and we have fellowship with our creator. Last verse. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. John's not got the, the farewell that we expect from a New Testament letter here. Give greetings, grace and peace, something like that. No, it's um, keep yourselves, guard yourselves from idols. Seems a little abrupt. But it's that phrase, little children, that, that really sets it off. Because what he's doing here is, is closing in a very loving way of saying, let me, let me just give you one last charge in light of all that we've just talked about, summarizing what we know about Jesus, summarizing that you are in relationship with God, that you can freely go into his presence and speak to him since you know what is true and therefore by way of contrast, you know what is false. In light of all that, obey him. There, there are a, a plethora of terrible false ideas out there and false teachings about Jesus, the, the, the things that are being declared about salvation, things that are being said about what it means to walk with God. But those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, they know the truth. And so what he's saying here is, 
keep yourself in that truth. This is sort of the piece that fills out verse 18. In verse 18, he said that God protects. He who was born of God protects him. So verse 18 is affirming the sovereign responsibility side of this that says, God keeps me. I am held by Christ, and because I am trusting in him, I am held. But that does also not mean that I have no responsibility going forward. And I can say that because I've professed faith in Christ, I can now do what I want, believe what I want. It doesn't really matter because he's got me. No, John also says, guard your heart. You keep also your own thoughts and, and desires. You have a responsibility in all of this. Uh, John's letter is not meant to give some kind of blind assurance or an assurance that would lead to passivity. Rather, what John is trying to do is get people who trust in Christ to have assurance that they, their belief is grounded in truth and it makes a difference. And it leads to godly living because of what they believe. False teachers are circulating in John's day and they are today. And you may say, well, that's, that's not necessarily something I'm overwhelmed by. I, I, I don't feel particularly besieged by false teaching. That's really, I, I understand what I believe and I, I believe the truth and, and, and that's that. That may not be the thing that tempts you or draws you away from the Lord. But idols, when he says, guard yourselves from idols, he's speaking about substitutes for God. Activities, um, things, people that we we, we import our desire for pleasure and comfort in, in place of God. We want this. I, I, I need this in order to feel good. I need this to comfort me. And, and, and it's something other than God. That's what idols are. Idols can, can drive our desires. They can motivate our thinking and our behavior. They can, idols can be the things we find our identity in. It's my work. It's my kids. It's my, however I do this, it's how well I play pickleball, whatever. Um, I am this. I do not play pickleball. I've not tried, so I don't, I don't profess that. But it's whatever we, we start to stake our identity in other than I belong to the, the God of the universe. And we, that's what John's warning us against. John has just finished saying, you know God. You, you know the creator of the universe and he, he is imploring you to come and speak to him and to be with him and find comfort from him and, and draw near to him. You, you have a relationship with your maker and you now know that he loves you and he gave himself for you and he calls you to follow him so guard yourself from substitutes that would detract you from that, that would push him aside, that would put him on the shelf and make you think that you can find all your joy and peace and identity in this. Don't look for your greatest joy and your identity in stuff. Find it in the one that you know is true. Rest in him. I'll end with this. As I was going through these last verses in 1 John, what echoed in my mind is the Old Testament book of Joshua. He's, he's led the people into the, the promised land. They've come into this place of deliverance that God has promised. They are the generation now who, is, who has been brought in. And, and Joshua summons the elders, the leaders, and he brings them all around. What does he do? He gathers them all around and he recites truth. This, this is our God. 
Remember what our God has done? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is our God. Remember how he delivered us? How we were slaves in Egypt and how he led us out and he crushed the enemy and, and he brought us into this land that, that was promised. In effect, Joshua was saying, I know you know all this stuff and you should know this stuff and it's true. And then what does Joshua do? In Joshua 24, verse 14, he says, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That, that's ultimately, Joshua's message is simple. You know who this God is. He has rescued you. Will you not choose to follow him and serve him? And here's John at the end of 1 John saying, isn't his love amazing? Isn't Jesus wonderful? Look what he's done, how God stepped out of heaven and came into flesh and lived amongst men also that he could give his life as a ransom for our sin and take our shame and our guilt and die in our place and then victoriously rise again. And he says, little children, follow him. Guard your heart against all the substitutes, all the false teaching, all the stuff that would say you can find your hope and peace and comfort and identity in anything but him and run to him and find your life in him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in you is our hope. I, I, I thank you for giving to us this book of 1 John, for um, this apostle who history tells us was largely alone for the latter part of his life in exile, largely without the fellowship of community, having to deal with the persecution that so often came to believers in that day. And out of that experience of sadness and hardship, able to write to his fellow brothers and sisters and say, this is our God. This is our King. This is our Savior in whom we have put our hope. Do not be shaken. Lord, thank you for this truth. Thank you that it speaks as clearly and powerfully today as it did 2,000 years ago. Father, I pray there are believers here who are walking through struggle, walking through battles with sin, walking through times of grief, walking through times of sickness and job loss and relational pain. And I, I, Lord, I, I pray that as you've called us to do that, as brothers and sisters, we would intercede for them and pray that your spirit would make the nearness of Christ a comfort, that they would know that Jesus Christ is the one who keeps and protects them and is the only one who is faithful at all times. Lord, would they know the hope and comfort that comes from believing in one who is coming again and is coming for all of his children. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning, anyone watching online with whom this is just not resonating, who, is, who has imagined Jesus as something other than what the word of God says, I pray that you would, by the power of your spirit and the power of your word, would cause them to to believe the truth would bring them to new life and cause them to see Jesus Christ alone as the Savior, that the rest of the world is under Satan's control, uh, but those who belong to Jesus Christ are kept and protected by him. 
Lord, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your word. Help us this week to be vigilant about guarding our own hearts and our thoughts and desires. We know that we will be tempted this week to want to find our identity or our contentment or our joy in all sorts of ways. But Lord, help us to not lose sight of the fact that you are the joy giver. You are the giver of peace. You are our life and hope. And that even when we delight in the pleasures of earth, those things are just gifts from you, stewarded to us for a season. And even they point back to you and your desire to give care and comfort to your people. So help us to be a thankful people and a people who guard our hearts, as your word says, by the help of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.